0: First Samuel chapter twenty-six this evening. Our journey through the scriptures. If you're with us tonight and you do not have a Bible, as we're going to cover, we cover a fair amount of ground on Sunday nights, and so you'll want one. Just raise your hand. There are men coming up the aisles right now, and they'll spot you and get a Bible into your hands. First Samuel chapter twenty-six. We left off chapter twenty-five, the incident concerning Nabal and David's marriage to. Uh, Abigail, and uh, uh, pick things up now in chapter 26. Now the Ziphites, we we come into them a a second time now, uh, in David's ten year period of preparation for becoming king. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is is David not hiding in the hill of Hakalah Uh, opposite Jeshimon, and so they, uh, like they did last time, they're trying to curry Saul's favor, he's the king, everybody knows that Saul's an unrighteous man, but he holds power, and don't you just hate it, I mean, it's just the way that it is, but it's still so distasteful, how, you know, if everyone would just rise up against the corruption of Saul, not do him any favors, but there's always that group of people that keeps these kind of people empowered and still trying to use them for their own end. And so the Ziphites kind of rat David out, and and they come to Saul with, and tell Saul where David is, so that he can now come and and hunt uh, David down. It is I, I will say that you know David is again when he becomes king, he he's very very gracious because. Ultimately, he's going to get the power to really bring some revenge down on the heads of these people that did wrong to him when he was in the eyes of the world, not in the eyes of God, a nobody and a nothing. But when he finally does receive that power, to his credit, he's... Very gracious and, and very kind to these that really deserved worse from him. And so they tell Saul with the idea that Saul will somehow reward them for this information. And so Saul's response is that he arose and he went down to the wilderness of Ziph bringing with him 3,000 chosen men, so we're talking about special forces here, of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And so uh, the last time, remember in chapter 24, when David spared uh, Saul's life, when he had gone into the cave at En Gedi to, to, uh, and had left his robe and, and all, and David had spared his life, and Saul had said, listen, I've... For what you've done for me, you could have killed me. I'm, I'm not going to do you any harm ever again. And, and, uh, and so Saul, we see here, his words were just pure emotion for the moment. And, and it doesn't re- didn't reflect any change in his life and his desire to continue to try and kill uh, David. And so Saul encamped at the hill of uh, Hakalah, which is opposite Jeshimon by the road but David stayed in the wilderness and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness so David had scouts he had spies out you know uh, sentries perimeter people to see uh, to protect his force of, of 600 men who are now with their wives and with their family it's a very large group that's traveling with David now and, and so he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, and David therefore sent out spies or scouts and understood that Saul had uh, indeed come. So he became aware of, of what's happening here. And so David arose and he went to the place where Saul uh, was encamped. And uh, David saw the place where Saul lay, so he comes at night, is able to get fairly close to the camp of of King Saul. Saul, where Saul, uh, Saul the king lay, and Abner the son of Ner, that was Saul's uh, general, uh, the commander of his army. Now, Saul lay within the camp, and the people encamped all around him. So, this is what they would do for security when they were out in the open is, well, you know, you go and you get like a Cinnabon in the mall. It's a lot like that. So, you. You work your way all the way around the edge and you go down more and more into the circle. So that's what they do. They just put the king right in the middle, put the, his kind of special forces right around him, and then they would put the other guys in rings around him. So uh, you're, even if you made a mad dash to try and kill the king, and Israel had plenty of enemies in those days, the likelihood of getting to the king wasn't very good. And so this is, this is the, the layout and the situation that that David uh, spies out when he comes to look at the, the layout of the camp. And then David answered and he said, listen, there's no way we can go in there and do anything with Saul, so let's just scatter. And that's not what he said. David answered and he said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, uh, the brother of Joab. And he said, who will go down with me? To Saul, not to probe the perimeter. I'm going to go right in the middle, right to Saul in the camp. That's a really dangerous thing that he's proposing. I mean, the likelihood of doing that and getting out alive is like nil unless God gets involved. God does get involved. And so Abishai, give you a sense of his bravery, the kind of men that were around. David at this time, he said, I will go down with you. And so David and Abishai came to the people. It was at night time, and there Saul was sleeping at the core of the camp, and there's his spear stuck in the ground by his head. Have spear, we'll travel. Uh, have spear, we'll chuck it at anybody who, uh, you know, causes me... To go cross eyed at all. So he's never anywhere without his spear, and it's by his head, and Abner and the people lay uh, all around him. And then Abishai said to David, So they go right through these layers of men. Again, we're talking about very elite forces. Really, these are tough guys very seasoned warriors, and they get right all the way through and they're standing right over Saul and they're, they're looking at him. And Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Uh, somehow Abishai recognizes this is completely supernatural. You don't walk into camps like this without waking somebody else. This is a God thing. And so God is, is this is God telling you to kill this guy. Right now, he's giving you a second chance. You blew it over it in Getty when you could have just pierced them uh, then. So God has delivered your enemy into your hand. <clears throat> now it is interesting that he says, "Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear." He he doesn't say, David, you kill him. It's it's already, we've been there and done that. David, I know you won't kill him. You still think he's God's anointed. He's God's problem. God has to take him out. So I'm not going to have you go against your convictions. All I'm asking is you give me the permission... To kill this guy, it'll take me one thrust, I won't need any do-overs, this man will be dead and our problems will be over. So let me strike him at once with a spear, I'll pin him right to the earth and I won't have to strike him a second time. So this is the request that he makes. Now if you're going to be in war a lot, these are the kind of guys you like around, around you. So he, he asked permission and David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And Abishai had thought, Oh, vey, I mean, here we go with the Lord's anointed thing again. Where he, how many times is he going to say this? But David, he really did look at Saul and he continued. He wouldn't, not only would he not take his life, but he wouldn't allow Abishai to do it. God had raised Saul up to be the king of Israel. God had anointed him, the first king of Israel. He had done it through Samuel. God hadn't done anything overtly to indicate to anyone else that they were free to kill, um, to kill Saul. And so David looks at it and he continues to just think to himself, Saul is God's problem. He is not my problem. God raised him up. God will have to take him out in order to make me the next king of Israel. But that's not my business. It is a wonderful thing, isn't it? When we're able to look at uh, sometimes those who make themselves our enemy or they're doing something against us or slandering or some kind of a deal that's going on and to be able just to say that person is God's problem. They are not my problem and it's not my business to get involved in what has to happen between them and God. I'm going to leave it with God. There's a lot of peace there. And, and David uh, takes the high road here and of course he's happy. And we're happy that he did. And David said, "Furthermore, as the Lord lives," says the Abishai, "God's alive. It's not like the God that we serve isn't alive, and we've got to take things into our own hands. The God that we serve is alive. As a, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him uh, and and take take his life or his." His day shall come to die. He'll just die of old age or he's going to go out to battle and perish. In other words, God doesn't need it, my help to take out Saul. God's got a million ways He can take anybody out in the whole world that He wants to take out. And, and so... Uh, leave it with God. God can take care of it. And the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please, let's do this. Let's take now the spear and the jug of water. (laughs) That spear that was thrown at him over and over. Let's grab that baby. And uh, a jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So they take the spear and they take the jug of water in order that as we'll see in a moment, when they confront Abner and Saul, they'll hold up the spear and they'll hold up the, the bottle of water as evidence that they had infiltrated all the way to the core of the camp and that David could have killed Saul if he wanted to. So David wants to make a point and he'll need this evidence in order to to back up his Uh, His claim here. And so, uh, David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head. They got away. No man saw or knew it. Nobody awoke. And here's the reason. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So, God is supernaturally involved in the circumstance. Probably doing a couple of things here. Number one, one of the things he's trying to get through to Saul... And also to Abner and all of Saul's men is, listen, gentlemen, you are not up against David here. You are up against me, and I can put any of you to sleep any time I want, and I can have any of you destroyed any time that I want. And so he's trying to send a message to Saul, but he's also trying to send a message to David. He's leaving his fingerprints all over the place. David, his guys are hunting you down, and they're chasing you, and they're doing all these kind of things. But and, and so and and. And what other people are doing to you has a tendency to, you know, fill up the whole uh, radar screen. That's all you're aware of. But if you look around, you'll see my fingerprints of how I'm protecting you all along the way to keep you encouraged in your faith. I promised you're going to be the king. You're going to be the king. And uh, David, regretfully, is not, there's going to come a point here, even maybe tonight. As we get to a second chapter, that David is going to lose sight of all of God's fingerprints in his involvement, and he's going to despair of in his situation. But God is, is doing a lot with that, that miracle here. And so David went over to the other side, put some great distance between him and the camp of of Saul, and he stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And then David called out to all of the people, the whole camp, all 3,000 men, and also to Abner, the son of Ner, who was the bodyguard and the guy supposed to be protecting uh, De- uh, Saul chiefly, and he said, do you not answer, Abner? So, it's just the dead of night, they're all sleeping, and then Boom, somebody's shouting out there. Now, there's no street lights. um, There's no parking lot lights. It's just as dark as can be. And somebody's shouting out the name of the highest general in Israel and and disturbing the camp uh, of the king. So, do you not answer Abner? He's getting Abner's attention. And Abner answered and said, Who are you calling out to the king? And he demands that whoever's disturbing the king's camp would... Uh, identify himself again there's no light he can't see who it is that's uh, making this commotion and so david said to abner are you not a man and who is like you in israel i mean you're top dog military wise why then have you not guarded your lord the king i think it's cute to david he's going to kind of he's going to kind of give abner a little But David's still a young guy, so he's like, it's like he's done this whole thing, you know. So he's gonna, he's gonna push Abner's buttons here a little bit. He's gonna do it publicly here. Tisk 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 tisk. Who's the big bad bodyguard that didn't watch the king tonight? For one of your people came in to destroy your lord, the king this thing is not good that this thing that you have done is not good as the lord lives you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master the lord's anointed and now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that is by his head and so he presents the proof for uh, his story and, uh, and, and his uh, accusation against Abner here, producing the jug of water and also the spear. And then Saul pipes in at this point and he because he knew David's voice. So he recognizes that it's David's voice even before Abner knows who's talking to him because David doesn't identify himself up to this point. And he says, "...Is that your voice, my son David?" Enough already with the my son David thing while you're out there trying to kill him. And David said, it is my voice, O Lord, my King. And he said, why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in my hand? What cause, what violation of the law of Moses can you pin to me? What accusation? What sin? transgression can you pin to me that warrants you attempting to take my life what evil is in my hand now therefore please let my lord the king hear the words of his servant if the lord has stirred you up against me, if God has told you to seek me out and to kill me, then let him accept an offering. If I'm guilty of some wrongdoing in the eyes of God, then, and God has sent you, then surely he's told you what I'm guilty of. You just tell me what I'm guilty of. I'll, I'll repent of it immediately, and I'll offer sacrifice for it. I'm willing to make these things right. But if it's the children of men that are stirring you up to do this may they be cursed before the Lord for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord speaking of the land of Israel they're driving me out of the land of Israel saying go serve other gods they're forcing me to move from the land of Israel into pagan lands where i'm exposed to all of these foreign gods and i have no opportunity to worship the god of Israel with a tabernacle and the priests and and all of these uh, in the furnishings and all of these Kind of things. And so now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as one hunts a partridge uh, in the mountains. And so David is, is accusing uh, Saul here and bringing these 3,000. He said, you bring, you're, you're, you're chasing after a flea. You don't have anything to fear from me. I could have killed you twice, but I didn't kill you. And uh, it is completely inappropriate. It, it, It is below a king to gather an army to hunt down a flea. It is below a king to gather an army and do what it is that you are trying to do to me. All of this is public. And then Saul said, I have sinned. So he gives his confession of his wrongdoing and all of this. He said, return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And so he uh, uh, declares, listen, you saved my life a second time. You could have killed me, and, uh, and so I'm not going to do you any harm anymore. And then I think it's very, very significant if we're going to understand anything about Saul at all. And we need to because there's great lessons to be learned about his life. I mean, so again, many of the greatest lessons that we learn are from people in life and people in the Bible who teach us how not to do something. And Saul is a classic lesson on how not to live in our lives. And so his autobiographical statement, he encapsulates his entire life for us in verse 21. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. How tragic it is for someone to come to the end of their life and this be the honest assessment of their life. I have completely, 100%, totally wasted my life. David didn't have to accuse him of it. He knew it within himself. Now thankfully, if there's any of us here tonight, that you're in a backslidden state, you're living a life of disobedience to God, the way that Saul did in all, you don't have to end your life with this kind of an autobiographical statement because of the privilege of repentance, confessing our sin, repenting, and then doing what it is that God has called us to do until We go to be with him or he comes back to receive us. And David answered this uh, statement of Saul. And he said, here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. So he returns the property. And he said, may the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today. David recognizes God was in it. But I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed Indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued, not in Saul's eyes, he, he's asking for something better than that, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all Tribulation, And so he um, uh, looks to the Lord and says, Lord, I, I ask that you repay me the good that I've done to Saul here. He doesn't expect anything uh, long-lasting of that sort from Saul. And Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son. David, you shall both do great things and also shall prevail. I'll tell you, I think that verse 25 is, um, to me, coupled with Saul's autobiographical statement, which is just extremely sad to me about anybody's life. They come to the end of their life and they say, I can encapsulate my life in one sentence I have erred exceedingly and played the fool. Write it on my tombstone. That's pretty sad. But verse 25 is really sad for me too because Saul really does for a moment kind of come to his senses there in verse 25. And, I, and, and what he speaks to David there really, it, to me, it gives us a glimpse into the great tragedy that Saul's life was because here we get a flash of coherence out of him, a flash of honesty out of him, where, he, where you get a glimpse at the depth of the man that was inside there all along, uh, the beauty, the grace, the strength, uh, the clarity of, of thought and mind, even a hint of spirituality in there. And you get a glimpse of that, that that was in there, in Saul, but it was so covered over in piles of his carnality and his disobedience that it never had a chance to see the sunlight and ever bloom. You ever have that situation? Don't shout out, please. But you ever have that thing where you got like that goofy uncle or that crazy friend or that whatever kind of a deal, and every once in a while you can get them to be serious and you sit down and for five minutes you see a person that you don't see five times their whole lifetime and you walk away and you think man what is bound up in that person the depth the beauty the potential but almost never gets out because of their carnality and because of their disobedience to God and Saul was that That kind of person. There was the potential for greatness in him. And he wasted it. Verse 25 is sad to me. And so David then went on his way. And Saul returned to his place. And so this is the last meeting between Saul and David. They would never ever see one another again. And then David said, chapter 27. He said this in his heart. He said, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul there is nothing better for me than I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of finding me there to seek me any more in any part of Israel. And so I shall escape out of his hand. Now David hits a, a real low spot here in his period of preparation. Remember David from the time that, that he was uh, anointed as, as king and the time that he's, or he begins his uh, you know, preparation to become the king and then the time that he's, he ultimately becomes king. It's a, he's in a season of a ten-year preparation. That's a, that's a long time. Six months is a long time. Job covers a period of six months. You'd think it covered decades when you read it. You're glad it doesn't cover decades because it's, it's such a deep, deep trial. But ten years of preparation is a long time that God was taking to prepare David... To become a great king, he's going to face all kinds of responsibilities and he's going to make all kinds of decisions and he's going to be the greatest king that Israel ever had next to Jesus when he came and when he comes. And so God was willing to invest. David just looks at it and says, this is the most horrible experience that I'm in the middle of. And God says, you have no idea what it is that I'm building into your life. And what I, and the decades of greatness I will build on this ten years that seems so miserable to you. But it was a ten year period of preparation in his life. And he's just about sixteen months away from the death of, of Saul. Just Less than a year and a half. Just got about eight and a half years into this thing. Just got about a year and a half to go. And he says, that's it. This guy is going to kill me. Now, Saul wasn't going to kill him. For two reasons. God had promised David that he was going to become the next king of Israel. God is going to keep his promises. David had all kinds of fingerprints, all kinds of evidence in his life during the eight and a half years where God had protected him supernaturally over and over and over and over again. But here he just finally hits a place and he says, this is it, I'm done with this. I'm done with this preparation. I I, I am not, not going to live to become the king of Israel. Sooner or later, Saul is going to get to me and he's going to kill me. And what David wants to do when this whole thing comes on him and he begins to believe that to be the truth about his life. Now remember, he's not just like one guy and 20 guys running around through the wilderness of, of Israel at this point in time. He's got 600 men with him. They're traveling. He's traveling with their wives, with their children. It's a big camp. It's become more cumbersome for him. And so he said, sooner or later, I can't, I'm, someday I'm... I'm dodging these bullets. I'm dodging these spears. One day I'm not going to dodge a spear by Saul. He's going to get me. God hasn't taken him out. This guy's going to take me out. In his desire, it's repeated twice in verse one, his desire is to escape. He wants to escape what it is that God has called him to and escape this season. Of preparation, he wants out of of what it is that, that God is, is doing uh, in in this season of, of preparation, and he he just loses loses hope, and I, and I think he just looks in between him and God. He he thinks, listen, God thinks too much of me. If He thinks I can take this day after day and week after week and month after month for eight and a half years and I'm not going to crack, He sees something more in me than I know is in me. He thinks too highly of me. I am not going to survive unless i take my life back into my own hands and and if i don't take my life back into my own hands i won't even survive to be anything in life much less the king of israel one day god this whole god thing is too hard for me i'm done and david's tired capital t capital i capital r capital e capital d he's tired He's done with God's will. Sometimes I have heard people talk about uh, the ministry or serving the Lord, and they say, well, you know, I get tired in the work, but I never get tired of the work. I get tired in the ministry, but I never get tired of the ministry. And sometimes I think to myself, well, good for you. Listen, I've got a carnal person inside of me I've got to deal with all the time. At this point in David's life he is tired in the ministry and he is tired of the ministry. He is tired in God's will and he is tired of God's will. You think about all you think about all the Things that could fill his mind in terms of what he wants to do here. And as he looks at the whole thing, he says, all I want to do, I just want to escape this whole thing. I don't need a break. I'm not looking for a rest. I'm not asking God for a vacation. I want out of his call upon my life. I want out of his plan for my life and David here reaches a place where he just wants to be like everybody else in life I don't wanna be a somebody anymore I don't wanna do great things for God anymore I just wanna be a somebody and a nobody just like everybody else in life I don't wanna live in caves anymore I don't wanna run for my life anymore I wanna live in a city I wanna sleep on a bed I wanna have a home for my family those are the things that I want That's all I'm wanting. Just to be like a normal person. No more dreams of doing something great for God or changing the world one day or being God's anointed or any of these kinds of things. I'm done. I'm through. I'm out. I just want to be like everybody else. And then he does it. As he goes to the as we'll see here, to the city of Gath, and he says, I'm going to embed with the Philistines here. I'm done with this running away from Saul uh, anymore. I understand Gath. I understand the Philistines. I understand all that I see there. What I don't understand is God's will and God's ways. And he's very, very discouraged at this point in his life and in his ministries. And he does the very worst thing that a saint can do at that moment in time. He becomes his own counselor. He abandons God as a counselor. And he becomes his own counselor. It's interesting, we see here, and David said, in his heart. There's no, Significantly, there's no mention of prayer in this move. And some people say, well, you look at this and, and take note of the fact that David uh, didn't pray. So, and, and, uh, and, and, and it appears that David forgot to seek the Lord on this decision. David didn't forget to seek the Lord in prayer. David knew how to pray. He's been praying to God all the way through his whole exile. I mean, he's demonstrated his ability to seek the Lord and God's will and to pray and to ask for it. I'm inclined to believe that at this point in time, he's not interested in hearing any other voice that would talk him out of his plan. Not even God's voice. I quit. That's it. I don't want anyone talking me out of it. And I don't doubt that he knows that he's wrong. And it's precisely for that reason he doesn't want to hear what God has to say here. So under his own counsel, we are our own terrible counselors at times like this. He declares, I will now perish one day by the hand of Saul. And when you look at David's life, you think, well, it can't get any worse than it does, but, than it already was, but it does get worse. And David is going to learn one of the greatest and most important lessons any child of God can learn in our own personal lives and in our ministries. And the lesson is this. As hard as God's will is in our lives, and I'm not kidding you, you know for yourself, God's will can be very demanding. Upon our lives Jesus wasn't kidding when he said If any man wants to come after me Let him deny himself Take up your cross and follow me I'm convinced that as each one of us Walks in God's will for our lives Whatever that might be Whatever the calling might be It'll be the death of us It'll be the death of the old man It'll be the death of the flesh It'll be a long Protracted process of death but it will be death. And it will be hard to die by in chapters and in pieces. But as hard as God's will can be, we have to always remember there is something harder than obeying God, and that is a life of disobedience to God. And that keeps a lot of people in the saddle to realize that. To look and say, this is as hard as can be, but if I jump out of the frying pan, I know I will jump into the fire. And God will force me back into the frying pan. He's amazing. He is, he is so firm, a disciplinarian. He is so loving, a heavenly Father, that He, he will keep us in His will. And I think it it is so significant in our lives to realize that. When I'm tempted to say, Lord, that's it, you're pushing me too far, you don't know how weak I am, you don't know how close to the edge I am in this, and and you're asking too much of me, and the temptation is to escape, take my life back under my own hands, worse yet, backslide and go back into the world of the Philistines. Always the remembering. As easy, as as much as we could look at that and say, that will make life easier for me, it won't. It will make life much harder. And we're going to see that this decision that David makes complicates his life immeasurably on, on the short term. Until we see him pray again. And he does pray again. Praise the Lord for God's grace. And gets back into the will of God. I know none of us know anything of this, but it's a good point from the passage related to our own lives. And so David arose and he went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of uh, Maok, the king of Gath. And so David dwelt with Achish at Gath. And he and his men, each man with his household, so they're traveling with their families, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, to the land of the Philistines, and so uh, uh, he ceased uh, uh, hunting David down, which is exactly what David uh, was was hoping for here. Now, you look at this whole thing where David goes back into uh, the city of Gath. It was one of the uh, five capital cities of of the Philistine uh, territory. And remember, a few chapters ago, when he had first begun to flee from Saul, uh, years earlier, he had gone into Gath. Uh, with Goliath's sword. Goliath came from Gath, and then everybody started to say, hey, wait a second, isn't that David? And, and didn't they have that song, Saul is killed as thousands, but David is tens of thousands, talking about Philistines? And they kind of realized who was in their midst. And we talked about it then, it was be kind of like an Israeli general today being discovered walking through uh, the Gaza Strip be in immediate danger. So David feigns madness. He starts to spit all over his beard and and scratch the wall of the gate of the city and they let him out and he escaped. You say, how in the world? Now he comes back again and he gets embraced by the leader of of the city of Gath and brought in. Everything's changed in the years between now and then. Why why wouldn't they try and kill him now? A couple of reasons. Number one... Everyone knows about, even the enemies of Israel knows about the division that's occurred between Saul and David. And so now when they see David come in with his 600 men, they don't view him as an Israeli military officer. They view him as a refugee, somebody that is on, David, on Saul's to kill list and, and running for his life. So they view him in an entirely different way. They don't view him as a physical threat to the Philistines. And number two, they see him come in with a seasoned army of 600 men. And the Philistines look at them and they're all, we're always looking for more soldiers or mercenaries to come alongside their army for the defeat of their enemies. And they look like this could be a mutually beneficial relationship. And so this is why David gets that kind of favor. And so then David said to Achish, if I have found, he's been in Gath for a, a while now. And uh, Gath is a walled city, so they've, they've, they've got beds, they've got houses, they've got rooms. It's a capital city. And in essence, David comes to Achish and says, Listen, I, uh, you know, this is a capital city. This is where all you elites live and everything. I mean, we're not worthy to be uh, living in Gath. Find us another city that we can live in and give it to us, and and we'll be happy to to go there. So, if I found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? We're just taking up space around here. Now, probably what David is up to. Now, David is just going to be as carnal as can be in this season in his life. He probably realizes he's he's being watched all the time by the Philistines in the city of Gath. So he wants a little room out in the country to kind of do his own thing without anybody, uh, the Philistines, knowing what it is that he's doing. And so Achish gave him Ziklag that day, and therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now, the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. So 16 months gives us the the length of time that uh, this particular chapter of his preparation was uh, going on. Aren't you glad God works all things together for good to those who love him or the call according to his purposes? He even works the bonehead things that we do together for good. I'm not advocating it. I'm just saying that he does it, and I'm glad. And anyway, so he's, uh, There's others that are glad here too. He's giving me some names. Hold on just a second here. <laughs> and David and his men went up, and they raided the Geshurites, uh, the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for these nations were the inhabitants of the land from old. As you go to... As you go to shore, even as far as the land of Egypt. And so David began to attack these people. These were very uh, violent nomad groups that were very, very hostile uh, toward, uh, hostile enemies toward the children uh, of Israel. In fact, some of them God had ordered to be uh, destroyed and displaced out of the land of Israel when Joshua uh, uh, led the conquest of the, the land of Israel. And so these are kind of perennial enemies uh, of, of the children of Israel. And so David began uh, to fight against them. We don't know. Maybe he uh, was just, you know, looking at it and saying, all right, I can go in from this place of Ziklag. I can stage attacks against these people, defeat them, weaken them, so that they're not as strong to cross over into Israel and be uh, attacking the men of, and people of Judah, which is southern Israel where David came from. So he's, he, maybe he's just looking and saying, I can, I'm not going to be the king anymore, but I'm, I can help out in this way and, and, uh, and kind of be a deliverer in, in a lesser way. And wherever, uh, whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, killed them all in the city, took away the sheep, the ox and the donkeys, the camels uh, and the apparel, and returned and came to Akish now again, in what David is doing here, this is not god 's will there 's nothing that 's commendable about what he 's doing here. God has not told him uh, to do this, and uh, so. He's, he's just this was just a way to keep from being discovered by the Philistines in terms of, of of his activities and so this is something that he will live to regret but this the record is here in the Bible of, of the fact that he did it and then Achish would Uh, come to David and say hey where did you make a raid today and David would lie and he would say against the southern area of Judah so he would tell Achish I'm attacking Jews I'm attacking my own land of Israel or against the southern area of the uh, oh man that's a long word wouldn't you say right there Okay, so you pronounce it in your own mind, or against the southern area of the Kenites. All of these people lived in southern Israel, so he was basically saying, I'm attacking Jews all day, every day. And so David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. So he's killing everybody to eliminate witnesses that would inform the Philistines of what David and his men were really doing. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. And so Achish believed David, saying, he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him, therefore he will be my servant uh, forever. So uh, Achish is not like this uh, uh, pillar of integrity in the whole thing. He is delighted at the news that, D- that David gives. him. He, he wants to believe the lie that David is telling him, that he's killing Jews or allies of Jews. So he's excited about it, how he looks at it. They're both trying to work this thing. And so Achish looks at it and says, if he's killing Jews then there's no way he will ever be able to return to Israel uh, in, in any capacity, and there's no way he'll ever beca- be the king of Israel it, by virtue of this violation. Jews don't kill Jews. And so he looks at it and says, all right, David is doing things now that is going to make David my ally uh, for the rest of my life and for his life, he'll be my servant. And so uh, everybody's, you know, working to, to try and come out on top on, on this, uh, you, know, for their, you know, for their ends to be met in it. Chapter 28. Now, it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And and Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. Now here's where where the whole thing of there's something harder than God's will, and that's being disobedient. Because now Achish uh, doesn't give David the offer. The Philistines are going to attack Israel. He doesn't say, hey, would you mind joining us as a mercenary force to fight the Jews? He said, you will do it. And David has conditioned him to think that David doesn't have any hesitation in doing it because for 16 months he's been uh, killing Jews in, in, in his lies that he's been giving to Achish. So Achish, is, uh, David is in kind of a, stuck in a hard place here, so he gives this kind of nebulous answer, this fuzzy answer that he gives to Achish. He said, surely you know what your servant can do. So he doesn't say, yeah, I'm going to join you in battle, or no, I'm not going to join you in battle. He's probably thinking to himself, help God get me out of this. If you'll get me out of this, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Because <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't want to kill, uh, go to war against the children of Israel. And so he's in a pickle here, but he uh, he can't just come outright and say, "Oh yes, I'll join you in killing uh, the Jews," and, and and yet he can't refuse it to say, "I'm going to join you in battle," because then it would. Uh, cause Achish to suspect him and remember even though David and his men are 600 that's a very small number in, in terms of the size of the Philistine army they would have been wiped out not counting God's will but they could have wiped them out uh, very very easily so David's in a tough spot here and then Achish said to David therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever and so Achish rewards David by making him one of his chief bodyguards and the whole idea is He's just demonstrating the highest level of trust toward David and, um, uh, and, and uh, making David indebted to him so that, so that he can't do anything but go to war uh, to, with Israel. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah, in his own city, and Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists Out of the land. Early in Saul's uh, uh, reign, he had uh, destroyed all of the spiritists and medium and occult and witches and warlocks and all that stuff. According to the law of Moses, he had put them out of the land, which was a good thing that he did. And then the Philistines gathered together and they came and they encamped at Shunem in order to fight against Israel. And so Saul then gathered all Israel together and they encamped against the Philistines at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Gilboa, where the children of Israel are encamped, is the high ground. The, where the Philistines are encamped, encamped is the valley of Jezreel. We know it as the valley of Armageddon. So Saul and his forces have the high ground. And as he looks out, he just sees thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Philistines coming up against him. And when he looked at that, it terrified him. He was physically affected. Uh, by the sight and so he doesn't know what to do he doesn't know how to lead and so when Saul inquired of the Lord he goes to to attempt to uh, you know get through to God I mean he's killed all of the priests in the land so he's got a tough time finding a priest at this point there's only one and, and he's in David's camp so he inquired of the Lord he wants wisdom on what to do. Are you going to give us a victory? What should we do here? And then notice, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by uh, Urim or by the prophets. God went silent on, on Saul. There is something harder than, in, than hearing anything that God would say to us and that harder something is silence to seek God for wisdom and, and to know what to do and for God to deliberately refuse to speak to a person. Now sometimes the Bible says if any of us lack wisdom, James chapter 1, then uh, what we're to do is we're to seek God and ask him for the wisdom and that God will give us that wisdom. The One thing he doesn't tell us in James is he doesn't tell us how long we have to wait. Anybody else like that? Like it right now? You know, listen, we've got, have, by 10.30 and uh, then I'll send faxes to everybody if it responds. So... I think one of the reasons that God waits sometimes to give us His wisdom is that when He tells me what to do, if I ask Him for wisdom what to do in this situation, I assume He wants me to do it right now. So I can be six months ahead of Him. So when He knows when He's dealing with a type A like me, He knows He's got to wait until, okay, this is the day I want Him to do that. All right, Kyle, this, do this. Here's my wisdom. And He knows by 10 o'clock we'll have, we'll have the whole thing rolling. So he's got to deal with a lot of difficult people in in giving wisdom in a very complicated situation. So we do have to wait. This is a different kind of situation. He just goes silent on Saul. It is fascinating, I I think, and a powerful lesson. It's a frightening lesson, but again, it's it's a good lesson. God had been speaking to Saul for years. And Saul just disregarded everything that God had to say. God's commandments, His wisdom, His Word, meant nothing to Saul. And so, when God knows that He's dealing with that kind of person, then He will just go silent on them. In other words, if a person has not obeyed what God has told them plainly to do up to this point, then why should he feel compelled to continue to communicate with that person? And he doesn't feel compelled to. He doesn't play that game. At least he doesn't uh, feel that he has to. And so here he goes silent on, uh, on Saul. And so Saul said to his servants, Hold on just a second, I'm thinking about something. I'm not having a medical episode up here, just so so you know. Someday I will, but not at the moment. And so Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium, someone that can communicate with the other side, with dead people, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, in fact, we found one, there's one left in the land, a woman who is a medium at the city of Endor. And so Saul then disguised himself and he put on other clothes. Listen, as a child of God, time you've got to disguise yourself to go someplace, something's wrong. You've got to put on a disguise and hide your identity. The Bible says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. There's no place for disguises or hiding. Any place we can't go into who we are in Christ, then we're trying to go someplace that God doesn't have, knows we have no business going into. So he disguises himself so she doesn't know that, that it's a king that's coming to him, King Saul, to ask for contact with somebody who's died and he put on other clothes and he went and two men with him and they came to a, the woman middle of the night, by night and he said, please conduct a seance for me and the word seance literally means please conduct a bring up for me I want you to bring someone up from the dead to communicate and, I will, and bring up for me the one that I shall name to you Well, the woman then said to him, so she's uh, a little hesitant, given the fact that these people are uh, being put to, to death, still under Saul's edict. She said to him, look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul said to her, by the Lord, he says, as the Lord lives, this is not so. He's bringing God's name. He's making a vow in the name of the Lord. He's saying, I swear to God. When he's trying to contract a witch to conduct a seance as the first king of Israel, all of which is absolutely prohibited in the law of Moses under the sentence of death. Cuckoo. As the Lord lives, he said, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And then the woman said, all right, who shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Samuel the prophet. Samuel had been the one that God had used to speak to Saul over and over and over again. So he feels like Samuel will tell me what to do in this pickle. And so when the woman saw Samuel, Samuel appears, she cried out with a loud voice. So she's shocked. Something happens here for her that's a little out of the ordinary evidently. Now, what she was used to doing, uh, if we're going to take kind of an educated guess, what a spiritist or a medium or someone who claims to have contact with the dead even to this day, number one, it's absolutely prohibited for Christians to be engaged in that. Why do I got to contact the dead for any kind of wisdom as if I could do it when I've got the Holy Spirit I can ask for wisdom on? So it's a fairly steep step down from what we have access to in terms of wisdom. And, and so here is, it, it, this woman is probably used to somebody coming in, she, I want to pay you to make contact with someone on the other side, and then she would just deceive them by pretending to make contact, making up a story or whatever. Uh, another thing is she perhaps was in, in evidently quite skilled at making contact uh, with that side of the spirit realm. And, but she's probably used to coming into contact with demons who are representing the people that she's trying to, to, to contact. It's a, it's a very important thing to know for us. Sometimes you can go, people sometimes they'll go to a a seance, they'll go to uh, a tarot card person or a palm reader or that whole demonic side of things and they'll say, listen, I went in there, this person knew nothing about me, knew nothing about my husband or my wife and she told me stuff. Nobody could know but me and my husband. And then she proceeded to tell me this. I'll tell you, by the virtue of knowing that kind of information, she's, she, you know, she's got a customer in me. The problem with that is that any demon can do that. These, these people are not making contact with True husbands and wives or sons and daughters who have died. They're making contact with demons who are pretending to be that person. They have watched your entire life. they got a database on everything you and I have ever done that only our wife knows or only our husband knows or only we know. They've they got, you, they got computer banks like... Well, I'm going a little too... But I mean, they don't need it. they got great memories. They know everything. They can come back and say this, this, this. They've watched their whole lives. And then people think that they've reached the person all they've really had contact with is a demon spirit. So this is what she's used to. When she then tries to conjure up Samuel here, she runs into a power, she runs into a something that she is not used to and she is shocked, we're told, so much that she cries out with a loud voice. She actually sees Samuel and not some demonic spirit posing as Samuel and she recognizes he has appeared here by a power that comes from God. And so, boom, she's, she's in the middle of something that, that she's not in the middle of uh, really ever. And so the woman then spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? She realizes now who her customer is. You are Saul. And the king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? So apparently she can see S- Samuel he can't see. But he's seen the reaction that she's had, so he says, Now tell me what it is that's going on. And, and ultimately, he's going to be able to, to uh, converse with, with uh, Samuel himself. And so, what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. And so he said to her, What is his form? What's he look like? And she said, He's an old man. An old man is coming up. And he's covered with a mantle. So that's what the prophets had. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground, and he bowed down. And then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? So by coming back to the earth, Samuel has been brought away from something much better than this fallen world. Now remember, Jesus speaking in, I think it's Luke chapter 16 where there was the story or the account not a parable an actual account of Lazarus and the rich man and they both died and they both that went down into Hades in the center of the earth which is where the dead went both righteous and unrighteous went before Jesus' death burial and resurrection and the rich man went into the hot side of Hades where the unsaved or the unrighteous went and the, the beggar went into Abraham's bosom where he's being comforted by Abraham. And the whole story of, of wanting to send the, the uh, beggar back to talk to his brothers and all of this kind of thing. But what we realize from Jesus' revelation is that at the time of Samuel, talking about Old Testament saints, that's where he went, down into Abraham's bosom, into Hades, the waiting place, and, and 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 he was uh, down there in Abraham's bosom and so he comes up out of the heart of the earth from where he was and Abraham's bosom is a, it was a pleasant place uh, for him now once Jesus was resurrected from the dead he emptied out the wonderful side of Hades and took all of those saints into heaven, and now it's just the, the hot side of Hades that continues to enlarge and, and hold people until the white throne judgment. And so he says, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed. For the Philistines make war with me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore. Neither neither by prophets nor dreams, I don't know what to do, and God's not talking to me. Therefore I've called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. I need some wisdom. And Samuel said, Why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? That's a terrible thing, wouldn't it? Hear somebody say, God's become your enemy? Oh, no thank you. So, basically, Saul, Samuel is saying to Saul, listen, I don't have control over God, who he talks to, who he doesn't talk to. And, and so... He, 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 and why he he's become your enemy. The Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand. Given it to your neighbor David. Because, that's a reason word. You did not obey the voice of the Lord. Nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, uh, before... Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. You're not listening to God because you've never listened to God and God doesn't feel compelled to continue the conversation. And moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel. You want wisdom on what's going to happen? All right, I'll tell you what's going to happen. The Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. I'm talking to a dead man. You're going to be in Hades with me tomorrow. What compartment, I don't know. What side Saul ended up in. But he does end up in Hades, in in that place. You're going to be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand uh, of the Philistines. And immediately, Saul's reaction, he fell full length on the ground. This is a big, tall guy. And he was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice. And I put my life in in danger in order to do so and heeded the words which you spoke to me. And now is a repayment to my service to you. Please heed the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you. Give you something to eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. And he refused. He said, I will not eat. And so his servants together with the woman urged him and then he heeded their voice and then he arose from the ground and he sat on the bed and then the woman uh, had a fatted calf in the house and she hastened uh, to kill it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread uh, from it. And so that was the menu. And she set it before Saul and his servants and they ate. So the, and, and then they rose and they went out that night while it was still dark before anybody would notice the king coming out of a, a medium's uh, house. So his last meal... On the night before his death, was in the home of a witch. I mean, what a terrible, terrible ending to to King Saul's life, all because of his. It's just terrible what a a disobedient life can lead to. So we stop here tonight, obviously, but we look as we as we stop here tonight. David's in the middle of a mess. Saul's in the middle. of a mess and it is as I look at this whole section of things I just think to myself isn't it amazing how much trouble and aggravation just a simple quiet obedience to God's word keeps us out of how uncomplicated life is. How peaceful and beautiful life is. Is we just simply learn his word and obey his word. I'm so, I, don't, I don't want to be king of the world. Nobody's asked me, by the way. <laughs> I know your hearts are saying, I just want to live a simple life. Little life of obedience before God and to enjoy the priceless peace that comes with that kind of life. This aggravation, I don't have any need for it. And the beautiful thing is, is that we don't have to live in that kind of life because of the salvation that is ours in Christ and the power that He gives us to obey His. Word. Anybody else thankful for the beauty and the simplicity of life that God's obedience to His Word produces? It's just a fabulous thing. We're so, so rich. Let's stand together and we'll pray.